as we said last Sunday, we have a theme for Christmas. And uh, here is the theme for Christmas. It's a wonderful life. That's our theme. It, it's a wonderful life. And we kind of previewed it last week by showing you a brief clip. And um, so our theme this year is going to be on It's a Wonderful Life. We're going to be looking at that theme and some of the, the, the themes from the movie um, and how to parallel that to our, our faith and our trust in Jesus. So um, what I want to do is I want to just ask the question, why, why this series? Why It's a Wonderful Life? Why should we do that? Well, first of all, this. Film critics believe that this is probably one of the best holiday movies um, ever, ever created. It's always rated in the top 100 when it comes to uh, Christmas classics. So it's a, it's a movie that people are well versed with. Um, since 1976, it went kind of went national in 1976. And since then, it's become a Christian classic or a Christmas classic. So as you look at the holiday season, look for this movie. Because someplace it's going to be on. You're going to find this movie. You're going to be able to watch it. The, uh, the creator and director was a guy by the name of Frank Capra, and the leading man was Jimmy Stewart. And both of them agreed that this is the best movie that they were ever a part of. So Frank Capra, Jimmy uh, Stewart, lending credence to the fact that this is a pretty, a pretty cool movie, pretty good movie. And it has some memorable quotes. I'm going to give you one from Zuzu, all right? And you can probably finish it. But remember Zuzu, the little girl? Teacher says, every time a bell rings, or every time a bell rings, uh, we just need to go home. You already know all of it. Listen, there are some really great quotes in this. And what I want to do is this. For some of you that don't know the story, I, I just I need to take some time this morning, and I need to give you the backstory. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of walk through some things and lead you up to a transition point. But let me give you the backstory. Um, George Bailey is kind of the main character, and he grows up as a little kid. And what I want to do is just, I want to show you a little bit of, of what he thought about life and what he really wanted to do as a child. Here's the clip. Wish I had a million dollars. Hot dog! Okay, for a kid, don't you have hopes and dreams? That's what George Bailey had, hopes and dreams. Here he is at a young age, and that's actually a cigar box. And what you do is you hit it and it lights up. The reason he makes a wish is because anytime you would hit it, it doesn't always light. So that's why they're making a wish. His uh, desire from the time that he was a child is to go and do big things. Not just to have a million dollars because he wanted a million dollars, wanted to be rich. Because he wanted to go and he wanted to experience life. He wanted to go out. He wanted to leave Bedford Hall Falls and he wanted to go and build cities. He wanted to go to college, see the world. And that was his goal in life. And so here he is later in life with the same ambition. Here's another clip. Of course, it's just a hope, but... Uh... You wouldn't consider coming back to the building alone, would you? Well, I... I well, Annie, why, why don't you draw up a chair? Then you'd be more comfortable and you could hear everything that's going on. I would if I thought I'd hear anything worth listening to. You would. I know it's soon to talk about it. No, no, Pop, I... I couldn't. I, uh, I couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of my life in a shabby little office. The, no, I'm, I'm sorry, Pop. I didn't mean that. I, but I... It, it's this business of nickels and dimes and spending all your life trying to figure out how to save three cents and a length of pipe. I go crazy. I, I want to do something big and something important. You know, George, I feel that in a small way we are doing something important. It's satisfying a fundamental urge. It's deep in the race for a man to want his own roof and walls and fireplace. And we're helping him get those things in our shabby little office. I know, Pop. I, I know that. I... I... I wish I felt that, uh, 
I've been hoarding pennies like a miser here in order to... Most of my friends have already finished college. I, I just feel like if I didn't get away, I'd bust. Yes, yes. You're right, son. You see what I mean, don't you, Pop? This town is no place for any man unless he's willing to crawl to Potter. Now, you've got talent, son. I've seen it. You get yourself an education and get out of here. Pop, you want a shock? I think you're a great guy. That's a great line. Son looks to his father, who's worked all his life in a savings and loan, not making a lot of money. He says, Dad, a great guy. And his father being a great guy probably embedded in him this desire to want to go out and do and be and build and see the world in an entirely different way. That's what George Bailey wanted to do from the time that he was a kid. He says, I want to leave Bedford Falls. I want to go to college. I want to go to Europe. And I want to go see the world. I want to build cities. I want, I want to go build uh, uh, skyscrapers. I want to do all of these wonderful things. So that scene is the last night that he's with the, in the house. He's getting ready. That day, he's going to, the next day, he's going to leave. He's going to go. He's going to go travel Europe. He's going to do all of these wonderful things because he has this desire, this wonderful desire to go out and experience life and make an impact on the world. I mean, isn't that like all of us? Don't we all want to make an impact on the world in our own special way? When you're young, you have these dreams, these aspirations of life. And that's what George Bailey wanted to do. And then life happens. And life happened. In the midst of his hopes, in the midst of his dreams, he suffered a series of significant setbacks. That very night in the movie, that very night, his father has a stroke and passes away. So rather than being able to go to Europe and eventually go to college, he's got to stick around. He's got to stick around and he's got to help in the, in the savings and loan, the building and loan. And what they actually do, the officers in the building and loan actually come to, uh, to George and say, listen, we, we don't want Potter, we don't want this evil Potter to take over. We want you to take over. And he's like, I, I don't want to take over. I want to go do all of this stuff. But if you don't do this, Potter's going to take over. So he sticks around and he makes a deal with his brother Harry deal with his brother Harry is, is this. Okay, so what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to stay here for four years. Harry, I'm going to give you all of my money for Europe. I'm going to give you all of my college money. You go to college, and then you come back in four years, and then I'm going to go to college. You're going to stay here and help with the building alone, and then I'm going to go to college. And that's what Harry does. Harry goes away four years. He comes back, but he brings somebody with him when he comes back. He actually brings a wife back with him. And with the wife comes a promise from her father that he's going to give him Harry, a job in another city. And, and George is, is like, wait, wait a minute. What happened to the promise? What happened to the four years? I, I'm disappointed once again. I'm stuck here. I, once again, I cannot leave and do the things that I want to do. Unable to leave, he finally hooks up with uh, the gal by the name of Mary. They have a wonderful marriage. And, the, and, and a very uh, a wonderful marriage wedding ceremony. On, on the day that they get married, something happens. And there is a financial crisis in the nation. There's a financial crisis in the city. And everybody wants to run to the banks. Everybody wants to run to the building and loan because they're fearful of losing their money. So they run to the building and loan and they're all lined up outside and they want to get inside because they're fear of losing their money. And Mary says to George, listen, don't go back there. We're, we're getting ready to go on our honeymoon. Don't go there. And he doesn't listen and he, and he goes to the building and loan and they end up giving away to all of the people all of their honeymoon money, all of the money they were going to spend on the honeymoon. Once again, sacrificing for all of these hopes, all of these aspirations, unable to find fulfillment. And the straw that broke the camel's back is right around Christmas time. Right around Christmas time, his Uncle Billy, forgetful Uncle Billy, was given some money to take to the bank, $8,000 to take to the bank. Uncle Billy gets to the bank and misplaces the money. And so what happens is they cannot find the money. 
And this is absolutely going to ruin the building alone. It is absolutely going to ruin Uncle Billy. And it's absolutely going to ruin George Bailey. His reputation, everything he's built, it's going to ruin everything. Because they can't find the money. $8,000, a lot of money back then. And so he says, that's it. And he walks to the end of the bridge on the edge of town. And he sits on the edge of the bridge. And he contemplates throwing himself over, over the side. He contemplates. And then God intervenes. You know how God intervenes? God intervenes by a second-class angel by the name of Clarence. Clarence is, is sent to, to come and to help him in the situation. And through his interaction with Clarence, this second-class angel, he gets to see what his life was actually like. Not in revisiting the way that he lived, but revisiting Bedford Falls without his presence. In other words, he gets to see life in the midst of Bedford Falls without his influence, without his power, without his, anything that he would have to do. Clarence, this angel, takes him back to Bedford Falls, and, and we hear these classic words. I'm going to show you the clip. These words are probably some of the most famous words in this movie. I want to show you the last clip. Strange, isn't it? Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Well, I've heard of things like this. You've got me in some kind of a spell or something. Well, I'm going to get out of it. I'll get out of it. But I know how, too. I... Now, the last man I talked to before all this stuff started happening to me was Martini. You know where he lives? Well, sure I know where he lives. He lives in Bailey Park. Are you sure this is Bailey Park? No, I'm not sure of anything anymore. All I know is this should be Bailey Park. But where are the houses? You went here to build them. Your brother, Harry Bailey, broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? One of the reasons why I believe this movie has become a Christmas classic is because of those lines. Each life touches another person's life. It doesn't matter who you are. Your life touches every other person in a wonderful way, in a way that only you can do that. And that's the wonder, that's the beauty, that's the value of this movie. George was able to look back, Clarence took him back on a tour, if you will, and he was to look back on the influence of Bedford Falls without the influence of George in all of the lives, all of the people, all of the circumstances of the people in Bedford Falls. No wonder this movie is so popular, so simple, yet such a powerful message. So here's the bridge, here's the gap. If George Bailey found out what it means to live a wonderful life in just the simplicity of living in Bedford Falls, doing the right kinds of things to the right people for the right reasons, if George Bailey was able to experience what it means to have a wonderful life, how much more so for us in the unique person of Jesus, Jesus who is God, who comes to live among us, who comes to earth, who comes to live among us, so that we, you and I, might have a different kind of way of living. 
George Bailey influenced a lot of people not really knowing it. Jesus comes to earth in the incarnation with this idea that when we look to him, when we trust him, when we put our faith ultimately in him, he will give us meaning and purpose in life. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read these verses. Paul, in a Roman prison sitting somewhere, writes these words to some people in the city of Philippi. And notice what he writes. Speaking of Jesus, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the wonder and the beauty of who Jesus is. And Father, I just ask that this morning that the, the Spirit of God would open our minds and our hearts, not necessarily to the reality of George Bailey, but maybe to the parallels of his life, also to the, the reality of the person, the unique person of Jesus, who he is and what he has done for us, the wonder and the beauty of God coming to us to make a very difference, big difference in our lives and the way we would live and exist. So, Father, we ask that you speak to us, and it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. So I, I believe what Clarence gave George the opportunity to do was to reflect on the life of Bedford Falls, to reflect on the absence of his life. Think back of how this impacted other things. I think what Paul is simply doing is this. Paul is saying, listen, what I want you to do is I want you to reflect on the person of Jesus. I want you to reflect on who he is. Notice what he says in verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your attitude, your mindset, your, your mindset, your, your attitude is, is important, right? I mean, did your mom or dad ever come to you when you didn't have a really, really good attitude as a child and ask you to change your attitude? Have you ever been around somebody in the office place that seems to continually have this bad attitude, this poor attitude? Well, we don't want to be around people like that because attitude and mindset's important. Books, hundreds of thousands of books have been written about the, the power of positive thinking and how to change our attitudes. What's interesting here is Paul's saying, listen, your attitude is important. I came across the importance of our attitude a couple of years ago in a book that I read, and it was a fascinating book. It's actually a book about golf. Rick Riley is a sports writer, and he was actually writing about golf, and the name of the book is called Who's Your Caddy? And as a sports writer, what he did is he contacted all of these golfers, professional golfers. He said, listen, what I want to do is I just want to caddy one round with you. Just let me caddy. Let me walk around with you for one round, and let me experience what it's like to be a caddy for you. And some people allowed him to do it. Others wouldn't allow him to do it. One guy who allowed him to do it was a guy by the name of, of Tom Lehman. And so they were on hole 14, and Tom Lehman is about 12 feet away from the hole, and he's putting uphill, and he's putting for a birdie, which is a good thing. The interesting thing is that two holes before this, two holes prior to this, when Tom Lehman had a birdie putt, he left them short, which is not good. You never leave a birdie putt short. So as they're sizing up this putt, Rick Riley says to Tom Lehman these words, it's dead straight, just don't be short. When he said those words, just don't be short, there was a hush among all of the golfers there. Now all of us non-golfers are sitting there going, what? what's the big deal here? What Rick Riley had done is he broke the code of golfing etiquette. Because this is what he did. He spoke in the negative, don't Short. He spoke in a negative way to the golfer, to a professional 
golfer, mindset, attitude is incredibly important in how you would approach your game, how you would approach your golf shot. And, and what, in, 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 the, in the, the arena of golfing, if you will, as a caddy, you never, ever speak in the context of an etiquette. And if that is so true for a golfer, your mindset, your attitude, and how they would approach their golf game, how much more so for you and I as we approach what our faith, our ultimate trust in Jesus and who he is and what he'd have for our lives. And when he simply says, point your mindset, point your direction, if you will, in the person of Jesus Christ. And what's interesting with the life of Jesus, and as we consider this, this passage, is this. This is not a top-down approach. This isn't the, the, the CEO of the company relating to all of the people underneath how to live and how to operate. This is a bottom-down approach. This is the God who comes to us in the flesh, who lives his life in such a way that he ends up dying on the cross for our sins. Jesus points an entirely different picture of who he is as a person. He goes from omnipotence to obscurity. He goes from status as the Son of God to slavery. He goes from riches to rags. He goes from glory to absolute humiliation on the cross. And so what we are invited to do by the Apostle Paul is this. I want you to reflect on my life. Reflect on the life of Jesus. Four reflections that I want to just pull out here before we send you off this morning. Number one, reflect on his status. Look at verse 6. Let me read again. It says this. Speaking of Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with something with God something to be grasped. Listen, one of the most important doctrines when it comes to our, our faith, especially at Christmas times, is the unique person of who Jesus is. You know, if you were to ask someone, if you had a conversation with someone maybe about who Jesus is, they may say, well, you know what Jesus is? He's, I think he was a prophet. Uh, maybe he was a wise man. Uh, maybe he was an enlightened kind of man. Uh, maybe he was a holy man, you know, and all of those things may be true, but, that, but that's not the reality of who Jesus is, especially as we worship him at Christmas time. See, Christmas is the celebration for us as, as followers of Christ, is the celebration of, of Jesus coming to earth in the incarnation, God coming to live among us. See, the Bible affirms that Jesus was fully human. I am, I am fully human. But Jesus was also fully God. I am fully human. I am not fully God. Jesus is fully God. Why? Because Jesus could do the things of God. That's what we've been seeing in the Gospel of Mark. The Lordship of Jesus. He's Lord over the nature. He's Lord over sickness. He's Lord over Satan. He's, he's Lord over death. Th that's what it means for Jesus to be Lord. That's what it means for Jesus to experience deity. This is God in the flesh. God. God. He comes to us. He comes to this world. He comes to the brokenness of this world so that we might know exist and experience fullness of life that he would. There's an absolutely beautiful text in, in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews begins, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3, and it's a beautiful text about the nature of Jesus, about the attributes of Jesus, about the person of Jesus. Let's just read it. Notice what it says. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory. Radiance has this idea of bursting out with light. Thursday morning. I'm driving on the way to work, and I'm driving into the sun. And the sun's coming up over the horizon, over the city of St. Louis. And, and it's just beautiful orange colors and purple colors. And the sun is bursting through the clouds and it's bursting over the city. And you stop, and you're just mesmerized. That's, the, that's that burst of life. Jesus, it says, is, is the radiance, the burst of light of what, of what God's glory, the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament, and the exact representation of his being. Exact representation has the idea of this. It's a stamp. 
There's a stamp here and there. Maybe there's some wax. You put wax on it. And you take your stamp and you, you put your stamp in there. And what does it do? It creates an exact representation. That's, that's who Jesus is. He is the exact representation of his being. He is the sustainer of all things by his powerful world. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand, the majesty of God. That is a beautiful picture of the nature and the character of who Jesus is. He's God in the, and he's God who's come to live among us. And I think what Paul wants to do is he said, listen, your attitude, your mindset, I want you to reflect on the unique person of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. When Paul writes in verse 6 that Jesus is the very nature of God, he's talking about his preexistence. He's talking about the one born of a virgin. He's talking about the one who would be alive and speak the galaxies and the, and the world into, into existence by simply proclaiming Colossians chapter 1. Verse 15, he's the one to whom the angels would cry out before the very creation of the world, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. If you, if you are familiar with Christmas and you're familiar with the gospel of John, the, the gospel writer John begins his gospel with these incredibly powerful words about the nature and the character of Jesus. Listen as I read them. It says this, in the beginning was the word, okay? The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Who is this God? Who is this creator? Who is this one who is sustaining all things? Who is he? He is someone who is with God. He's preexistence. John goes ahead in verse 14, answers the question when he says this. And the word, Jesus, became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know what that phrase, dwelt among us, means? It means tabernacled. It means tabernacled. They could look and see the tabernacle. They could look and see the temple. It means this, that, that God came to this earth in the incarnation, and he came to dwell among us, to live among us in this broken, dirty... There's a scene in the movie... Um, it, it, the, actually, the, the movie begins, if you're familiar with the movie, begins. They're, they're, all the people are praying. They're, they're praying for George because George is going to take his life. So all the people are praying. And what's interesting in the movie is this, that the author, the, the creator, Frank Capra, he, he affirms the existence of God. He affirms that God can see and hear. He affirms that God wants to help because that's why he's sending Clarence the angel, right? He affirms all of these wonderful truths about God. And we would say yes, 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 and yes. But we actually have from the words of the Apostle Paul is this, that God came to inhabit the earth through the person of Jesus. He doesn't just stay up there. What he does is he comes and he walks around and lives among us, ultimately going to the cross and offering himself as a sacrifice for sin. So what Paul says, listen, I want you to reflect, I want you to reflect on what I could do. I think there's a second reflection. It's in verse 7 in, in this. We're, we're to reflect on his service. Remember, we're not looking at a top-down approach we're looking at a bottom-up approach. You have the divine status of Jesus that comes. And what does he do? Look at verse 7. It says, But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in the human likeness. So one of the, the reasons why I like this, this movie is because I, I believe it portrays real life. And from the time that George is a child, from the time that he is an adult, as it walks through his life, it, it portrays a lot of real circumstances. Well, in the movie, they go to war. All of a sudden, they're, they're, they're at war. And everybody in Bedford Falls gets involved in the war effort. The, the older people, the younger people, the, the mothers, 
Anybody who can sign up and go to the war wants to go to the war because they want to help the United States. They want to be a part of this. But George can't go to the war because he has an ear problem because when he was younger, he saved his brother. So he can't go to war. And it's interesting in the movie that all of these people who go to the war come back heroes. This man fought in this battle and was a hero. And this man um, fought in, in the battle and, and he took this bridge. And his brother Harry, his brother Harry is awarded with the Congressional Medal of Honor. And it's really interesting how they describe George in the movie. And they kind of ask the question, well, what about George? You know what George did? He had a whistle around his neck. And he was out at night and he was an air raid captain. And he was uh, in charge of paper drives and rubber drives and all that other kind of... It's, it's almost as if he's a byproduct of all of these people who are doing big and important jobs. And what's George doing? Well, he's just kind of doing ordinary things like paper drives. George served his community. He just did what was right. He did the things that he was supposed to do. In our passage, Jesus is God. What the divine says is he comes not as a king, not as a Roman ruler, not as a, an important man. Text says he comes as a servant. Many people believe that the background for this text is from John chapter 13. Familiar with John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross and dies. He's got all of his, his disciples there. They're in a room, the upper room, and he takes off his clothes and he wraps a towel around and he, he goes and he washes all the disciples' feet as an act of servanthood to all of his friends and to his family members. In other words, what Jesus simply did was he demonstrated this servant attitude. Verse 7 says this, he made himself nothing. It literally means he emptied himself. What, what does that mean, he made himself nothing? How do, you empty your, how do you empty yourself out? I mean, how do I empty myself out? If you pour something in a, in a bowl and then you pour it out, the, the bowl is empty. Well, what does it mean to pour it out? What does it mean to be empty? But what it doesn't mean is this, that Jesus was God and he was always God. And he didn't empty himself as deity. He was always God. In the what it does mean is this, that there are particular points in time in the life of Jesus when he was faced with a decision, when he was faced with doing something. And he was going to make an important step, if you will, to serve God's purposes no matter what and no matter how difficult. Beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's in the wilderness. For 40 days, he's being tempted by the evil. 40 days, he's being And the tempter comes to him and says, hey, listen, you're hungry. Why don't you just turn these rocks to bread? Simple miracle for Jesus. But remember what he said? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What I'm going to do is I'm going to set aside the voluntary use of my attributes, my deity, if you will. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to come and I'm going to serve a greater purpose. And the greater purpose is to listen to the will of God and what he would have me to do. And if the will of God is for me to be in the wilderness for 40 days, praying seeking the face of God and walking in obedience to him, then that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to trust him for my life. There's the same illustration in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will will be done. And so Jesus comes as a servant, if you will, not to do his will, but to do the will of his heavenly Father, which will include eventually going to a cross for the sins of all. Think about it this way. The wonderful, the beautiful Savior of the world living in the wonder and the glory and the perfection of heaven. Well, there is no sin, there is no stain. Glory all around him leaves the beauty, the beauty of heaven. And he comes to a stall and he's born among smelly animals, manure, animals, a feeding some 70, 80 miles away from. If, if a mother gave birth in any kind of setting like that, now we would be appalled. We would, we would, we would revolt about that. We would, no, it, can, it can't happen. 
Welcome to the world, King Jesus. Welcome to the world, King Jesus. He left the divine status of heaven to come to earth so that he could dwell among us, do all of these wonderful things to point us in the right direction, ultimately so that we would put our faith and our trust in him as servants so that we can live a life that's in, from a bottom-down up approach. So status, we looked at servant number three. Look at verse eight, submission. What did Jesus come to do? And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Okay, so there is a scene in the movie. If you're familiar with the movie, um, George is coming from a party. His brother comes into town, right? He's married. Everybody's celebrating the fact that Harry got married, and George is kind of going, wow, what, what, what's the deal with me here? I haven't been able to do anything. So he walks and he goes to see Mary, and he has this conversation with her, and they're having this conversation, and you can tell he's just going, everything that he's wanted to do, he hasn't been able to do. And he grabs Mary by the shoulder, and he says, Mary, he says, I want to do what I want to do. That's kind of like all of us, right? I want to do what I want to do. I want to live and do things that we want to do. I mean, that's kind of, from the time we're a child, we basically want to do essentially what we want. What's interesting is this. Never got to travel. Never got to go to college. Never got to see the world. When you look at the house that he lived in, in the, tucked in the corner, there's this little place where he built all these, these skyscrapers and all of these cities, all of these things that he wanted to do, all these models of things that he wanted to do. He was never able to do any of those things that he truly wanted to do, where we celebrate our freedom. We celebrate our freedom. We will fight for all, won't we? We'll fight for all. We'll fight hard for our freedom. And into this world, that's the creator the one with divine status. And he comes to tabernacle to live among us. And he sets aside all of his rights. And he's humiliated. And he's spit on. And he's mocked. And he's not accepted. And he's made fun of. And he's ridiculed. And he does all of that to live in and under the submission of his heavenly father who has called him to come to this earth to offer himself as a sacrifice for Jesus lived in submission, absolute obedience to his heavenly father, even to the point of death. There's a great verse in the book of Hebrews that talks about what life might have been like, what was going through the mind and the heart of Jesus before he went to the cross. And let me just read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Notice what it says. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus' life is going to look like when he comes into the world. Notice what it says. It's kind of heady, but we'll get it. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, that's the incarnation, right? Jesus is coming into the world. He said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O Lord. No doubt the Jewish people would understand about burnt offerings. They would understand about sacrifices. They would understand about all of those things because that was so much a part of their life. The animal sacrifices. You sin, go to the, to the temple and offer an animal for a sacrifice. The problem with all of those sacrifices could never do the one thing that they wanted, to cleanse their conscience. I mean, could you imagine having to do an animal sacrifice for every sin that you did last week? I'm going to just stay up here every day. Because we are people who sin. They recognize there's no way that that could happen. But what does Jesus come? He says, I have come to do your will, O Lord. And what Jesus actually does is he takes them back to the Old Testament. He takes them back to Psalm 4. And this beautiful psalm about the sacrifices and how they're going to end. And how Jesus was going to come. And he says, I'm going to do your will. Even if it means I am going to go to the cross and offer myself as a sacrifice you know, I think an honest reflection for us would be this. Do I live that way in order to the Lord that I'm going to do what the Lord would have me to do in Scripture 
and walk in obedience. And I don't, I don't separate myself from my, my, my personal life and my Christian life. You know, There's this blending of the Word of God in my life in such a way that wherever I go, I'm going to walk in obedience to Him, whether it be in my car, whether it be at my work, or whether it be in my thought life and personal life. I, I'm going to do the best that I can to walk in obedience. And that's what Jesus did. He walked in obedience to who Jesus is. You, you know, you have the status of Jesus as the Son of God. He comes to be a servant. He comes to, to walk in submission. And then he comes to do the last thing. And that's to give himself as a sacrifice for sin. A sacrifice. Every one of us, almost every one of us in this room fights for life. We fight to stay alive. We fight to live. If I get sick, I get hurt. If some young person is sick or hurt, we, we fight. We go to doctors. We, we'll do whatever we can. We fight. We want to stay alive. That's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing because life is incredibly precious. But what Jesus came to do is this. He came to live, to tabernacle, and then to ultimately go and die on the cross for our sins. He was going to die on a cross. To a Jew, to hang on the cross was a curse. To the non-Jews, you, you know what the cross was to non-Jews? It was despicable. Only criminal, only the worst of the criminals are crucified on a cross. The worst of criminals. And here Jesus, with his divine status, as a servant, submitting to the will of God, is now labeled, thrown upon common criminals to go to the cross and die. A bloody, horrible death. And it wasn't just the fact that it was a death on the cross. It's just in the way that it was mocking. It was shameful. You're stripped. You're beaten. And people walking by and saying all of these things to you in such a demeaning way. And that's what Jesus came to do, to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 says this. By the way, we're going to transition to, we have a table here. I'm going to invite our guys to come forward. And we're going to call, transition. To Hebrews 9, 26, when we're speaking about the sacrifice of Jesus, let me just read what it says. This is, but now he has appeared. We're talking about the incarnation, right? Why did Jesus come? Why is the mystery? What's the revelation here? He has appeared once for all at the end of ages to do away with sin by what? By the sacrifice of himself. See, the cross was Jesus going to the cross, offer him himself as a sacrifice for my sin and your sin. That's the purpose for Jesus coming, that we might experience life, that we might experience the forgiveness of First John chapter 3, verse 5 says this, but you know that the Son of Man appeared you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him there is no sin how how does jesus remove my sin how does jesus remove yours he does it by going to the cross offering himself as a bloody sacrifice and then three days later being raised from the, so that we might have proof of the of sin that's why jesus so what i think what paul would have us to do would be to reflect on the life of jesus that he came to us to serve to submit and to sacrifice that we can have the kind of life. Listen, you can't have a wonderful life. I can have it by simply emulating, if you will, the life of Jesus, reflecting on the life of Jesus, who he is and what he did. This is the first Sunday of, of December, and the first Sunday of every month we take communion. And the way that the reason we do this is because we're reflecting. That's what 1 Corinthians 11 says. Reflect on the life of Jesus. Reflect on the, the bread. Reflect on the cup. Reflect on the body. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 a follower of Jesus who saw who saw Jesus up front. He saw the transfiguration. He saw the glory of God. He watched Jesus die. Said this, quoting from the Old Testament, he says this, speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sin on his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds we in what ways we have been reconciled to a holy God because of our faith and our trust in Jesus. 
we celebrate the fact that one day he's going to come. The first advent was the baby. The second advent, second uh, time that he's coming back, he's coming back as a warrior with him. I believe that. Father, I, I ask that you would impress upon us this morning the beauty of Jesus, the one who left the glory, the, the beauty of heaven, of relationship, of worship, of adoration, the one who experienced all of those things in a profound way, in a way that we cannot think or imagine, left that to come to earth and to live. Father, your word says that we will live because you live, and we thank you for that. Father, I don't, I don't know the heart of each person here this morning. I pray that you encourage them this morning, that you love them, that you care for them, that you went to the cross to offer yourself as a sacrifice for sin. And by simply believing and trusting in the blood of Jesus, we have new life, a new quality of living. And Father, we thank you for that. Father, we thank you for the body of Jesus, his broken body. And we're going to celebrate that this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.